Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. Today, we will wrap up our series. Um, We will wrap up that series in Colossians by dealing honestly with just two verses, verses 5 and 6. Uh, There is a lot packed into these verses, and last week we talked a great deal about prayer and kind of some how-tos with regard to prayer, and I hope that you found that not only um, uh, insightful, but I hope that you found it practical as well, because each one of us needs to learn how to pray better, and there is a countless amount of verses that are presented to us to teach us how to pray. Uh, We shouldn't have to scratch our heads and say, how should we do this? We shouldn't be lost in kind of, you know, uh, the the spiritual ether or something like this. We should know that although there are spiritual things that are going on, although there are uh, calls for us as Christians to to abide in the Spirit of God and, and to listen to Him and to pray in step with Him, there are many practical elements of prayer that we often overlook. So last week we talked about prayer, and this week we're going to talk about our conduct, and we're going to see how all of this wraps in with the greater story of Colossians, and in particular, that thing we've referred to as the Colossian heresy. Here's what Paul says in verses 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Uh, As I have uh, journeyed in the Christian world for most of my life, uh, it appears that there are two camps in the church today, two specific camps when it comes to our relationship, the church's relationship with the world. Uh, Both of these camps claim biblical support for their positions, uh, but we need to really understand that both of these camps, both of these positions are actually not biblical camps. The first camp, or both of those camps, are going to be up on the screen, and that is the us versus them approach. How many of you know that that's an approach that the church takes? Us versus them, we kind of uh, we kind of retreat into our holy huddles and we just go our own way. The other approach is the uh, can't beat them, join them for Jesus, of course, uh, approach, right? Can't beat them? Well, we'll join them. We'll look just like the world, and we'll uh, never actually look like Jesus asks us to look. Again, both of these ideas, both of these camps, claim biblical support for their position. The first position, again, the, uh, the us versus them, likes to use Ephesians 5 as an example. Here's what Ephesians 5, 11, and 12 says. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead uh, even expose them, for it is a disgrace even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. And so, of course, the idea is that we're going to run away from the world, and if we're doing anything in the world, we're exposing the world for all of its wickedness. The problem is just a basic lesson in English teaches us this has nothing to do with people. <laughs> it has to do with the deeds of darkness. And what are you not supposed to do? Participate in the deeds of darkness, right? So it's really important that we understand this. Proponents of this idea will say that God's people are to be set apart. That's true. That's true. 
but you're twisting it too far. Or you'll say that, uh, that we are supposed to kind of be in our holy huddles. It's the us for and no more. It's the frozen chosen concepts. All of these things, you probably have heard all of these in your life, but we run away from uh, the, the call that God has for us. The second people group, again, is the can't beat them, join them for Jesus uh, group. And that group cracks me up because that seems to be the more common uh, camp in the church today. This camp uh, looks just like the world, and here's why. Spoiler, it's really deep. Because they are the world. They look just like the world because they're not actually Christians. They've slapped a Jesus bumper sticker on their car. They've worn a Christian t-shirt. They listen to K-Love. They eat at Chick-fil-A. Maybe not anymore. But the point is they keep pushing into these things. And yet, and guess what? They look just like the world. Right? A chicken sandwich doesn't save you. Neither does your Christian t-shirt. Neither does your stupid Jesus bumper sticker. Sorry. You guys are like, we shouldn't have prayed for boldness this week for Nathan. <laughs> I got a text from Miss Stephanie Gammon this week, and she said, I'm not really sure the world's ready for a bolder Nathan. <laughs> it's not, but you better get ready because it's coming, right? The reason why this camp looks just like the world or looks more like the world is because they're of the world. This is goats among the sheep, if you will. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, specifically verse 10, is often cited in some strange, obscure, out-of-context fashion for this approach. And here's what Paul says there. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters for then you would have to go out of the world. And so the, so the uh, can't beat them, join them for Jesus crowd says, look, it tells us we can't leave the world. We can't get out of the world. So we need to just be a part of the world. Ah, But just reading that passage with a brain realizes that he is talking about excommunicating or setting yourself apart from some people. Who are those people? Hypocrite Christians. I get really tired of hearing people in the church say, ah, we're no different than you. We're no different than the rest of the world. Well, you ought to be. You ought to be. I literally heard a pastor say this. He said, we're no more ahead of the schedule, no more advanced than you are. Well, I don't want to follow you then. I don't want to follow somebody who's no farther ahead than me. I want to follow somebody who understands surrender. I want to follow somebody who understands sacrifice. I want to follow somebody who's willing to lay down their life for the thing God called them to lay down their life for. I'm not really up for following you if you tell me, hey, we're two poor blind beggars in a hole together because we can't get out. We won't eat and we won't see anything. This is not good. So I want you to be more advanced than me, or, or you should want me as a leader to be ahead of you. You should want that, and you should expect that of your leaders. It's a sad, sad state in the church today where we actually still, I believe it was a pastor named Doug Wilson who said that uh, it's really appalling that the world, or that the church, allows its leaders to continue to play footsie with the world. It's not what we're about. 
So he does say we're going we're gonna to not associate with somebody, but it's make-believe Christians. Look at what he says down here. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother who. You get it? That's a staggering thing. That we're not to associate with people who claim Jesus but look just like the world. Yeah, so much for that idea of can't beat them, join them for Jesus. The call is holiness. Using accounts of Jesus himself, this, this camp will say that we should all remember that Jesus hung out with sinners. How many of you have heard that? How many of you have said it? Hey, Jesus hung out with sinners. Yeah, you do know he was on mission, right? You do know that Jesus didn't turn water into wine at the wedding to get drunk, right? You, you know that. Give me a daggone break. Hanging out with sinners. What did Jesus say he came for? Sinners. <laughs> the lost. You see, when Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came from sinner, for sinners, Jesus was actually throwing a grenade in the room. Do you know what that grenade was? All y'all are sinners, <laughs> and I came for you. But see, the religious people, the people who think they've got it all together, who like to claim adherence to God or claim possession by God, but live the way they want to, that's what was true about the Pharisees' church. That was, that's what was true about the Pharisees. It's not that these people were good, upstanding, almost Christians, but Jesus hadn't come yet. It's not what they were. These were people, okay? These were people who took God's word, they manipulated in so many different ways so that they could live in their sin, abandoning the widow, abandoning the orphan, abandoning the poor, pushing people to the margins of life, divorcing their wives for any and every reason, being abusive and hateful, all of these things to every foreigner around them, to the Samaritan, to the Syrophoenician, to everybody around them. They were throwing them out, and yet they claimed God's stamp on their life. Please don't conflate, please don't conflate the Pharisee of the Scripture with a Christian who is deeply committed to the Word of God, because you're wrong. You're wrong. We need to be a people fully dedicated to God. And guess what's going to happen when we're fully dedicated to God? The world's going to think we're religious nut jobs. The world's going to point the finger at us and say, oh, fuddy-duddies, fundamentalists, great, that's what we need more of. If we are a people of love, if we are a people of compassion, we will be the people that God has called us to be. So what we're going to see today in Colossians chapter 4 is we're going to see that both of these camps are dead wrong. In Colossians 4, 5, and 6, Paul gives us clear instruction as to what, as to what we are to do in respect to outsiders. So it's not us versus them, and it's definitely not can't beat them, join them for Jesus, okay? Those things don't work. So we're going to see these, this relationship with outsiders. We're going to see the what. And then we're going to review some key points, key points that we've learned throughout this series. I'm going to tie all of this fun stuff together. And believe it or not, 
I'm going to do it within a reasonable time frame. So we're going to talk. You don't believe me? It's okay. You don't have to have faith in that. I, I, will, I will prove you. I will prove myself to you. So we're going to see these key points in the series of Colossians. And in doing so, what we'll do is we'll, be go, go, we'll go beyond the what. Many times in church, we hear the what. Here's what you're supposed to do. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. But what we often don't hear, how. How many of you know that? We often don't hear how. We go, that sounds great, Nathan. How do I do it? I need help. How? And we often don't hear why. And that's the question I ask most of the time in my life. I I love to understand why God would want something. So we'll dabble into the hows and the whys. So, verse 5. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. That's the first piece that I want you to see. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. As I've told you in sermons in the past, I like to, I like to, uh, to zero in on key words and phrases. I think that this is just, first of all, it's, it was taught to me. It's a common Bible study method, but it really works for my personality. So conduct we're going to look at, and then with wisdom or wisdom in this uh, particular context. As we know, Paul addresses what most scholars are calling the, the Colossian heresy. And what lies at the root of the Colossian heresy, if you remember, is philosophy and empty deception. This is chapter 2, verse 8 of, of Colossians. Philosophy and empty deception, uh, empty deception according to the tradition of men. you got to highlight that in your Bible because that's the qualifier for this. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, there's another one, rather than according to Christ. Now, I've stated this since the beginning of the series, and it wouldn't be any good if I didn't conclude the series with the same statement, and that is, God does not have a problem with philosophy, God does not have a problem with tradition, and God does not have a problem with principles, because he gives us all of those. He just doesn't like your philosophy, your traditions, and your principles, and by that, I don't mean that God doesn't care for your heart and and that he isn't uh, concerned with how you think and how you process. If he wasn't, he wouldn't explain to you why or how you, sh- you ought to do anything. But the major problem in Colossae right now is that they're adhering to these human principles, okay? Likewise, like, just like God doesn't uh, like your principles or your philosophy and wants you to do it his way, he also uh, loves outsiders, not the way we do it, okay? He loves outsiders. God is a God of redemption. You need to understand this. Uh, one of the key roles of a king is to redeem a people who have gone astray. That's a key role in any king's life. Why? Because if a king doesn't redeem a people, he soon won't have a people, and therefore he's no longer a king. So he redeems people, and this is exactly what God does. And so God cares for outsiders, and he wants us to operate in a certain way with respect to those outsiders. He wants us to conduct ourselves with wisdom, and he wants us to be on mission to those very people. So the word conduct here uh, literally means to walk. It means to walk. But He's not just telling you an exercise regiment, right? He wants you to walk out the very thing that you're supposed to do. We've all heard the saying uh, that we have to go beyond talking the talk. We also have to walk the walk. Merle says this in Father's Group constantly, and we need to hear it constantly. And that is, we have to walk our talk. That's his phrase, and it's perfect. It combines both of those ideas, right? We have to walk our talk. In other words, we have to do what we say we're going to do. 
We have to not be the hypocrites from 1 Corinthians that I just read. Because what are we supposed to do with the hypocrites that call themselves Christians? I need you to actually use words this morning, church. What are we supposed to do? Here's the answer. Not associate with them. Got a sign-up sheet in the lobby for anybody who's really on board with this. You see, the reason why the church looks just like the world is because we like to do what God says in one area, and then we like to throw off his rules in another area because we go, well, that seems offensive. That seems, how am I going to save them? How am I going to help them? You don't save people, just so you know. How are you going to do this? You're going to actually let, this is crazy. (laughs) I'm learning this. I got four daughters. It works. It works. It works. Shame works. I don't hear any amens, funny enough. Funny enough. You know why? Because the shame you're thinking in your mind is that inappropriate, foolish shame that your, your dad or your abusive husband or somebody did to you a long time ago. I'm talking about the shame that says, hey, there's natural consequences for the things that you do. There is, there is a need to know, uh, this is crazy for people, there is a need to know that your heavenly father is displeased with you sometimes. Doesn't mean that he doesn't love you. But he can look at you and say, no, Nathan, I'm unhappy. I'm unhappy with you. Man, we don't like this. Paul even says in the scripture, he says that shame, he didn't intend to shame people, but that shame had its perfect result. Because it actually works, whether you like that or not. So our conduct is supposed to be one of walking. We are to walk out what God has said, which means we need to walk our walk, talk our talk, not be hypocrites. We have got to quit giving the world fodder for why the church is awful and why Christians are no better than anybody else. You see, the term here, conduct, communicates the what that we're supposed to do. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So behavior is clearly in view, but it must be wise behavior. It's got to be wise behavior. What kind of wisdom are we talking about here? Is this just some sort of pragmatic thing, or is it something beyond that? Well, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 9 and 10 of Colossians, and we'll start to see that this is something bigger than just good advice. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, what is it, church, if you've been paying attention? Their faith, their hope, and their love. Who are they? The Colossian church, right? Since the day we heard of it, your faith, hope, and love, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. It is fascinating to me that if I were to say to most Christians, man, I am proud of your faith, hope, and love, the response in their mind would be, I've arrived. They didn't get that. Instead, Paul says, I'm impressed by your faith, hope, and love, and I'm praying for you to grow up. Wow, it's amazing. Why? Because we won't stop growing until we see Jesus face to face. Amen? So he says, I'm praying for you that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all. Say it with me, church. 
Spiritual wisdom. That's the wisdom God is talking about. How do I know that for a fact? There's no Bible verse that says, I mean spiritual wisdom, church, and not practical wisdom. The reason I know this is because the whole, em- uh, the whole emphasis of the book of Colossians is against what appears to be wise, but is foolishness. The Colossian heresy. The whole point is against human or man-made philosophies and ideas. So what he means by walking in wisdom towards outsiders is to walk in spiritual wisdom towards outsiders. And, and then he goes on, understanding so that you will, and here's the confirmation of my point, that you will do what? You'll walk the walk. That you'll do what God says. So you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Just a small extra credit. As you walk out the call of God in spiritual wisdom and as you produce fruit, the scripture says you will grow. It's not the full grown that produces fruit. Right? It's those that produce fruit that are growing to full maturity. Really powerful. So he goes on in chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, and he says this, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so, say it with me, church, walk in him. What's that word? I can't hear you. That word. In. Yes. Can you walk inside of Jesus? That's kind of weird. Okay. So we know it's not literal. That's not what he's talking about. Walking in something is to walk in their principles or in the statutes or in the governance of a thing. If you're walking, if you are a part of America, if you are in America, you are inside of it. You are are doing its mission or its plan, okay? And to walk in Christ is not to be inside of him necessarily. It is to walk in his statutes, in his ways, right? And this is what happens when you walk in him. You are firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So if we are fruit producing people, we are growing to maturity. If we are growing to maturity, that is we're walking in God, guess what we're also going to be known as? A grateful people, a worshipful people. No wonder people are put off by the church. We walk around with our sour faces all the time. What's the deal here? Bunch of grumps. I don't know what the deal is, okay? I get it. Sin is bad, and we need to take that seriously. But we need to be a people filled with joy, should we not? So, we're looking at spiritual wisdom. In Colossians 1.28, and these verses are not up there, but you can write them down. In Colossians 1.28, Paul talks about admonishing Christians with wisdom so as to present them complete in Christ. Did you know that you need to admonish one another? Did you know that we actually do need church discipline? We do need to shape and mold each other. We don't need to look at other Christians and say, this is between me and God, butt out. You've missed the point. You have no idea what you're talking about if that's your attitude or your heart in this. So verse one, or chapter 1, verse 28 talks about our wisdom in admonishing one another. That's one of the ways that we walk in wisdom. In chapter 2, verse 3, Paul tells the church that in Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. So where do you go for wisdom and knowledge? Where do you go? Jesus. He is the one who has it. You don't need another self-help book, okay? Ten easy steps on not being a jerk. I mean, maybe you should read it, but, but 
You could fix it if you just read God's word, if you just trust him, right? It's just that easy, okay? And Phil, I wasn't talking about you, so I just want you to know. In chapter 2, verse 23, he looked at me like he was like, I don't like you right now. So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just working the crowd here. In chapter 2, verse 23, Paul contrasts this wisdom with that of the world. He says, you do these things that have an appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value in fleshly indulgence or with regard to fleshly indulgence. Again, God is not talking about earthly wisdom. He wants you to trust him. In chapter 3, verse 16, he connects wisdom with the word of Christ. And this is the one I want you to really understand because we're going to take a huge turn in walking with wisdom towards outsiders right now. And that is that he, is, uh, he has in view the gospel and the mission that the church is on. There is no way for us to be us versus them when we're on mission to them. Amen? And if spiritual wisdom and Jesus' conduct and his way of living is what we're supposed to be participating in all the days of our life, we also can't be, can't beat them, join them for Jesus. We have to live holy lives on mission to the world around us. When it says in 3.16 that wisdom is the word of Christ, it is code word for the gospel. The word of Christ. And why do I know that? Because that word of Christ richly dwells within you. If it dwells within you, it's already there. And it's there for every age of Christian, whether new or old. And the only thing that you would have in common if you're a new Christian and an old Christian, is in order to be a Christian, you understand the gospel. Do you see the logic here? So the point is, you have the word of Christ which dwells in you. This is the gospel message. This is that message which Romans 1.16 says is the power of God unto salvation. So what does all this mean? Well, it means that the conduct with which we are to engage the world is gospel conduct. This is all about holiness and righteousness proclaiming Jesus to a lost and dying world. We are not called to a holy huddle church for any length of time other than to admonish, teach, and encourage one another and then get back on the field. Somebody says to me, man, I don't like the modern church because services are in and out in about an hour. It's like going to lens crafters, right? I don't even know if that's a thing anymore, but lens crafters. And then other people are like, well, I like long church. And then there's people that say, well, how long is long church? I mean, can we just go 24 hours in a day? Do you see this, this argument is missing the point? The idea here is that we should assemble together so as to encourage, edify, correct, build one another up. It's not all that you're good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. It also includes you're, you're dumb right now and you need to fix it, okay? That's the part of the message you guys don't always like. I'm sorry. It's like my one-trick pony job here. But the, the idea here is that we need to be corrected and we need to go back out into the field. As long as church takes to get there, that's how long church should be, okay? So, I've just extended my sermon for another 40 minutes. No, I, I'm not doing that, okay? So, we are called to be a servant of all people, are we not? So, we're not a holy huddle. To continue to go into all the world, that is still our mission. But, in the same breath, we are not called to go into the world and be just like them. When Paul told the Corinthians that he had become all things to all people, which is another verse that people quote out of context, 
One translation in particular gets it amazingly correct when it says that I became a servant of all so that. I became a servant of all. There's a massive different, massively different meaning in those two things. I became all things to all people doesn't mean you need to get down in the dirt with everybody and look just like them. Again, Jesus did not turn water into wine so that he could get drunk in the wedding feast. He was doing something culturally and something uh, prophetically that needed to be done. You and I, we have a responsibility. Maintain holiness. Walk upright before all men. We are a servant of all, just like the Apostle Paul. It's a small note here. Conducting ourselves with wisdom is not code word for being skeptical of outsiders. <laughs> okay, We are to be shrewd as serpents and as gentle as doves. But, listen, if every time you engage with unbelievers, they feel like you're diagnosing some sort of terminal illness, you're doing it wrong. Okay, If they're like, oh gosh, here he comes again. He's going to tell me all the things that I... Okay, so love them. Show them Jesus. Preach the gospel to them. Call them to righteousness and repentance and all the things that God has called them to. They may not still like you, but nobody said that that was a guarantee that they would like you. At the same time, if they never hear the gospel, you're still doing it wrong. I say this a lot. Francis of Assisi's statement. Go into all the world and preach the gospel if you have to. You have to. How can they believe unless they hear the message. Not that they watch you be so cool. Okay? <laughs> Plus, let's just, therapy. We're not that cool. Okay? Are we, Carl? No. Okay. We are not that cool. So we're still doing it wrong if we're missing this. Okay, so the second piece. We are to conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. Next half of that verse. Making the most of every opportunity. If you're a note taker, please write this down. Study it throughout the week because it will really wreck you and change you. The phrase, making the most, means to buy back or to buy. It does. It means to redeem. That's why the King James translates it correctly. It says redeem the time. Okay? But according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which I recommend you study, and you get into lexicons and dictionaries and be a total dork like me. But according to the Dictionary of the New Testament, this term is, been, is used, and when it is used, it means to buy something, buy in such a way as to exhaust the possibilities available to you. Write that down. To buy in such a way as to exhaust the possibilities available to you. This is important. Because it paints a very vivid picture. One that shows that this is not passive, serendipitous evangelism. Well, I'm just going to walk around and act like Jesus and people are just going to get my Jesus cooties on them. It's not going to happen, okay? I know, you guys are like, what is this guy doing today? Anyway, but it's not going to rub off on them, okay? They may ask you of the hope that you have, but it doesn't rub off. Your priority is to preach the gospel. Think about this. Here's the, here's the image that you have. How many of you want a new gadget or a toy? Men, don't you dare not raise your hands here, okay? Look, John wants one, okay? A, a boat or something like, you want something like this. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so you guys, you guys know what this is like. Now, I want you to think back on how you work your finances to accomplish that goal. All of a sudden, the husband who doesn't lead at home, the husband who never chimes in, doesn't want to balance the checkbook with his wife, doesn't care about things, comes in and says, I have a financial strategy to get the goal. Here's what it is. We're going to eat rice and beans for a month and a half. 
okay? We're going to sell the children, right? We'll just sell it. Somebody said yes to that. I have a problem. Anyway, we're going to sell the children. We're going to make every move necessary to accomplish the goal. Guess what? That should be your heart in preaching the gospel. You move whatever you need to move to open your mouth. And you know what we do? We go, ah, didn't have an opportunity today. Never came up. Your coworker said, so what do you think about Jesus? And you said, it never came up. See, church, we have to be better at this. We have to start beating down the door. We have to start asking people. We have to start looking at our day and saying, you know what? I want to talk to that guy, and I'd like to talk to him at lunch. But here's the deal. We often take lunch at this time. You know, I'm going to change my time. I'm going to find my way into his life. I'm going to sit down next to him. I'm going to talk to him 10 times until he wants to punch me in the face. Whatever it takes. But you're going you're to move all your resources around so as to accomplish the goal. You'll do it for a boat, but nobody wants to do it for Jesus. Ouch. Welcome to my job. Guys, it's... I've told you this before. People say, I just want, I want to be encouraged when I go to church. Good. Here's what I'm encouraging with you with. You have been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. Now go do it. I am building courage into you by telling you what the word of God says. You have the power. Go. It's not what I meant by encouraging, Nathan. What I meant was tell me that my life's okay the way it is. Well, it isn't. Here's the difference between me and Todd Huffine. You're scared of Todd Huffine because he's got better muscles than me. <laughs> but what you didn't know is that I'm his personal trainer. <laughs> no, it's not, it's not true at all. It's not true at all. Not even close to, <laughs> to true in that situation. But listen to me, church. Listen to me, church. I'm not interested in beating you up if you don't want to follow Jesus. But I am commanded, according to the scripture, to keep fellowship with those who walk their walk and talk their talk. Dang it. Breaks your heart, doesn't it? Breaks your heart. And here's why it breaks my heart. Because there's been many times where you guys probably should have just said, I ain't talking to Nate for a while. We all go through those times. We all sin and fall short. What are we supposed to be marked with? Repentance. Turning back. And coming to God and saying, I'm yours again, Lord. I'll do it your way. I'm sorry for what I have done. That's what it means to redeem the time. Last verse. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This is powerful. Number one, being gracious is required in order to respond to each person. Maybe you haven't read the verse right. Let me show you. Let your speech always be with grace. That's not a speech act. That's a heart condition. Here's how I know. As though seasoned with salt. Some translations say seasoned with salt. It's fine. It's the same basic thing. Let your speech always be with grace. As though seasoned with salt. Say it with me, church. So that the speech act can be what it needs to be, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. If your heart is not gracious, you should probably shut it. 
there's another awesome Nathanism there, right? If your heart is not gracious, if you don't have this goal in mind to be gracious, then you probably have no business talking. But if your speech is always with grace, if you're in that position, then guess what? You will know how you should respond to each person. You'll be able to look at that Christian who's just missing it, and you'll say, listen, the Father loves you, and he wants you to walk after him. So come on, let's do it. You'll be able to do it. You'll be able to do the same thing that Jesus does in Luke 4, verse 14 through 29. You can study it on your own. But you'll be able to do the same thing there, and you'll be able to proclaim the gospel that God has come to bring sight to the blind and health to the lame and all of these beautiful things. And then when people say, yes, that's awesome, we want that miraculous stuff, we want all that, that, that comes with it, you'll also be able to look at them and say, yeah, but you don't want the deeper things. You want all the, the fancy stuff, but you don't want to walk in holiness. I challenge you to study Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 29. Here's what you'll learn. Jesus makes a, a big show in the temple, and people are moved by his gracious speech. It says that grace was dripping from his lips. What an amazing picture, right? After he says the gospel that everything is going to be great, then he looks at the Jewish people there, and he says, but here's the problem. You're not listening to me. He just looks at him and says it. You're not listening to me. And they're like, what do you mean? And he says, and this is why back in the days of Elijah and Elisha, God went to foreigners because they listened. And I'm about to do the same thing. You know what they did when Jesus' uh, lips were dripping with grace? It says in Luke 4, they drug him to the side of a cliff and were ready to throw him off. Sign up sheets in the lobby right? That's gracious speech because you know how to answer. That's the last part of that verse. You know how to answer. Being gracious is, of course, salt. That's something that adds or enhances flavor. Sure, that's true. Being gracious as salt is something which preserves. Sure, that is true. But we need to understand what we're dealing with by modeling it after Jesus. So in conclusion, here's the deal. Paul does not say to the church in Colossae, be afraid, be very afraid. The world is going to get you. Their human philosophy, their traditions, their principles, it's all going to eat you up. It's going to chew you up and spit you out. You should hide in your holy huddles. That's what you should do. Run from the world. Paul doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, holiness doesn't matter. Just see what happens. Try to live out your faith and see if it rubs off on them. That's the modern church's evangelism model, and it's crap with a capital C. It's not good, church. It's not good. What are we supposed to do? Here's what Paul says throughout the whole letter of the Colossians. Let no one take you captive through empty philosophy and deceit, human wisdom and ideas. Instead, with a clear view of Jesus, this is the whole letter in a nutshell, Instead, with a clear view of Jesus, a clear view of the gospel, you walk in wisdom and you be on mission to the world that God also wants to redeem. There's the message of Colossians. Church, we are called to so much more. We are called to so much more. Again, what are those two camps? 
us versus them, and the can't beat them, join them for Jesus. Are we a part of either of those, church? No. No, we are not. We may walk in that now, but we are not supposed to. We are supposed to be a people on mission to Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.